The following message is from Ridgewood Church in Greer, South Carolina. For more information, visit RidgewoodGreer.com. We're in a teaching series uh, that we started back in October. We are considering the big story of the Bible. And what we've said kind of each week is that we are inevitably storytelling creatures. Uh, I remember uh, a couple of months ago when football season was just getting started, there was this Kirk Herbstreet commercial where Kirk Herbstreet was like narrating over scenes of football games in previous years. And it's this epic music and this epic narration. And the commercial ended with the greatest, uh, talking about this upcoming football season, it is the greatest story ever played. And the thing that struck me was like, we are such you know, committed storytelling creatures that we even have to make our football games stories. Even our football games have to be epics. For me, it was a tragic epic, personally. Now, we are storytelling creatures. We all have some kind of overarching narrative about the how and the why of human history and our place within it. We all have some notion of the good guys and the bad guys and the goal, the trajectory of where this story is headed. And the Bible makes the comprehensive claim to be telling not just a story, not just one of the stories that sort of scatter across human history, but to be the story. The true story of the whole world, of all peoples, all nations, across all times, and in all places. And in my opinion, we have reached the best part of this particular story. Chapter 9. The chapter that is filled with the big reveal. The chapter where everything all of a sudden clicks into place. Uh, One of my favorite movies is the 2006 classic, The Prestige. Has anybody ever seen The Prestige? Anybody familiar with The Prestige? All right. If you haven't seen it, it's a fantastic movie. It's a little bit stressful, so just be warned. Kind of a thriller, but it's a great movie. It's one of those movies that's building and building to this moment that you never see coming. And then, bam, there's this big reveal. And then simultaneously, as the reveal is sort of unfolded, you're like, I could have have never seen that coming, and I should have seen this coming the whole time. Everything all of a sudden clicks into place. All that was hinted at, foreshadowed, promised, pays off. It is all fulfilled. And that's exactly where we are in our story today. Chapter 9, Messiah. Chapter 1, we considered the garden where we saw that God was intent on creating a people uh, to enjoy his presence in his place. Chapter 2 was the fall, the cosmic overturning where God's people are exiled from his garden, from his presence, and his place. But God, being rich in mercy, chapter 3, promises that through Abraham, he would remedy all that's been broken. That Abraham's family would be the solution to all that was lost back in chapter 2. Chapter 4, we see God's commitment to his people by rescuing them from slavery out from Egypt and ushering them into a promised land. Chapter 5 was the story of the law. How God calls his people to reflect his holy character before the watching nations. Chapter 6 was about the kings. Some are good, some are bad, most are pretty bad. But through the story of the kings, we're given a promise of one capital K king who would bring about God's kingdom and God's rule. In chapter 8, we saw the story of the temple where God's promise to be present with his people is replayed and his presence is once again reinstated in the midst of his people. Uh, And then we get to chapter Last week, I don't remember what the chapter title was. I think I got my numbers off, but you guys feel me. Last week, the story of the exile. The story of the exile, which is sort of like the fall, the sequel. Where the people of God in judgment are cast out and enslaved by the surrounding nations as a consequence for their rebellion. 
And so you have this kind of cognitive dissonance. You have God's promises on the one hand, and we have what God's people are experiencing on the other. They've been cut off from the land. They've been cut off from God's presence. There's a promised king, but where is the king? We are enslaved to these pagan, horrific, brutal kings and these nasty, brutal pagan empires. And so the question that we sort of land on with the story of the, of the exile is, will there ever be a return? Will there ever be a welcome back into the presence of God? There's silence and there's waiting until we arrive at chapter 9. What we'll see today are two huge plot threads that are introduced in this chapter, and then we'll consider a few ways that those plot threads intersect with our story. Now, we get to the point in our teaching series where we've arrived at the New Testament. The New Testament begins with four books that are often called the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These Gospels are written around the middle part to the end of the first century, so within two to five decades or so of Jesus' ministry. And the four Gospels each have their own priorities and emphases, but they're all telling one story about one guy. What's his name? Jesus. Jesus of Nazareth. There's a lot of differences and a lot of different sort of focuses across the Gospels. But at the end of the day, even in spite of their unique contributions, the one thing that they all have in common is that they want us to see and relish the fact that Jesus is him. Turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Mark begins like this. Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel, or good news, of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. Now, this word for time is not like the ticking of the clock. That's the, the Greek word chronos, where we get chronology, kind of the mechanistic as seconds and minutes pass. This is not the word that's used for time in this passage. The Greek word here, rather, is kairos, which means something like the moment. Or one lexicon said it's the, the decisive, waited-for epoch. The time, with a capital T, is now. Jesus says it's fulfilled. The word fulfilled can mean something like mature or perfect or complete. In other words, Jesus is saying about himself that I am bringing to realization that decisive, waited for moment. And what are the people of Israel awaiting? What is Jesus announcing is arriving? The kingdom. The king has come. The Messiah, which means the anointed one, has arrived. The one who would end exile and bring about the kingdom has come. Now, we could sort of visualize it this way. We have an image I'll throw up on the screen for us. What the Jews expected. Let's go to the, there it is. Jewish expectation. So, uh, the way the Jews at the time of Jesus would have expected this to work is that there was this old age. Remember, everything was kind of broken in the fall. And so, we have this old age where the kingdoms of this world reign. Sin and Satan and death and all of the nastiness that comes with that is characteristic of the old age. But they expected that when the time would be fulfilled, that the king would come, he would bring about the kingdom of God, he would bring the, you know, the age to come, he would, he would install kind of fully and finally and completely, and things like sin and death and evil and these evil, brutal pagan empires would be completely upended, and they would usher in, the Messiah would usher in the kingdom of God, where God's people would dwell with God, enjoy peace and harmony forever. And what Jesus goes about preaching is this. 
I have brought the age to come now. The kingdom of God has come in me. Look again at Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Kingdom of God. Now that word, especially in Jesus' times, that phrase, kingdom of God, would have triggered a whole host of associations. Now, it's, it's kind of like when you think about a film score, you think about a classic movie score. Early on in the movie, you have these themes that are introduced, like, um, uh, uh, dun, 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 Right? Or another film series you have. Right? And then later on in the, in the movie you have the. And then. Right? And as these movies go on, these motifs, these kind of musical ideas, they get associated with the character, and then they kind of get repackaged and, and redeployed, and they kind of get mixed and remixed with different elements of the score. And it's kind of like this whole snowball of associations with these motifs develop as the story progresses. It's the same idea. The kingdom of God was one of these big kind of snowballs of association that's built and built and built and built. Wrapped up in the kingdom of God is the themes of Abraham, of people and land. It's the themes of David, a throne and a kingdom. It's the theme of the temple, God's dwelling place with man. It's the promises of the prophets, the new age, the lion, lying with the lamb, the feast of marrow and well-aged wine. And Jesus comes saying, all of that, the kingdom of God and all that that entails, all of it has arrived in me. The kingdom of God is at hand. So here's our first plot thread. We can put that back on the screen. First plot thread is this. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. Everything that the Old Testament was building towards finds its yes in Jesus. He is the center of the Bible and he is the answer to every question that has been posed up to this point. This is what the story has always been building towards. And Jesus in the Gospel of Mark says, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's me. I've come to bring about the fullness of these promises. And of course, Mark's Gospel isn't the only place we see this. This idea of Jesus as the grand fulfillment, picking up on snowballs of stories and motifs. Think about the Christmas texts in the Gospel of Luke, if you're familiar Think about it. An angel appears to a woman and promises a child, a virgin, a woman who can't possibly conceive as promised a child. Does that sound familiar? Think about a promise of a child from the house of David born in Bethlehem in the city of David. Does that sound familiar to us? Think about the shepherds, shepherds surrounding the institution of a king. Does that sound familiar to us? What about the glory of the Lord appearing in the stars? Does that remind us of any passages like, say, a burning bush or a thunderstorm descending on a mountain? Or what about kings from foreign nations bringing gifts of gold and frankincense? That should remind us of Isaiah 60, which says that exact thing will take place when the kingdom arrives. Or what about Matthew's gospel? Again, just in the opening chapters of Matthew's gospel, the opening words begin with the genealogy that tells us that Jesus is a direct descendant of which two really important guys? The son of David and the son of Abraham. And then we're actually told about Mary's fiance in the story. Joseph, a son of Jacob who dreams dreams and takes his family to safety in Egypt. 
That should sound familiar. Or we're told that this baby who would be born is named Jesus or Yeshua or Joshua, which happens to be the same name of the guy who led Israel into the promised land. Or what about the fact that this baby will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us, God with us, like a garden, like a tabernacle, like a temple. Or think about John's gospel, which begins, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning should sound really familiar, right? The word becomes flesh and literally tabernacles among us. And that's just the beginnings of the stories of Jesus. You read the gospels and you see over and over and over again that Jesus is presented as the grand completion to the true story of the whole world. That all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. It becomes really easy to see why later on, after Jesus' death and resurrection, he encounters a couple of hapless guys on the road to Emmaus. He breaks up in his Old Testament and he tells these guys this, Luke 24, 27. Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them what? In all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Jesus understands that Jesus is the center and the answer to all of the questions that are proposed in the Old Testament. Paul says it like this in Galatians 4. When the fullness of time had come, when time was pregnant and ready to pop, in other words, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. That's why the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us definitively with an exclamation mark by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Listen to me. Jesus is the one. He is the boy who lived. He is the one who would bring balance to the force. He is Aragorn, son of, Arathorn, uh, son of Arathorn, descendant of a sealed door. He's Paul Atreides. He's Percy Jackson. He's King Arthur. He's Poe, the Kung Fu Panda dragon warrior. He is all of this and infinitely more. Jesus is the one to whom the story has always been building. Jesus is the center of all of it. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus. About 10 or 15 years ago, uh, I was came across this sermon by the late, great Tim Keller. Maybe you've seen this, maybe you haven't, maybe you're familiar with who Keller is, maybe you're not. But the sermon, he was talking about the point of the Bible. You know, is the, is, is the point of the Bible to kind of go find uh, fables and lessons and sort of moral stories for us? Is the point of the Bible first us? Keller answers that by giving a resounding no. The point of the Bible is not first you, it is not first me. The point of the Bible, Keller says, is Jesus. And I couldn't read or, or deliver this sermon without reading this quote from Tim Keller. So good. That's what he says. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who, though innocently slain, has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for our acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham who answered the call of God to leave all comfortable and familiar and to go out into the void not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac who was not just offered up by his father on the mountain but was truly sacrificed for us. Jesus is the true and better Jacob who wrestled and took the blow of justice we deserved so we, like Jacob, only received the wounds of grace to wake us up and discipline us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. 
Jesus is the true and better Moses who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better rock of Moses who struck with the rod of God's justice now gives us water in the desert. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer who intercedes for for and saves his stupid friends. Jesus is the true and better David whose victory becomes the people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. Jesus is the true and better Esther who didn't just risk losing an earthly palace, but lost an ultimate and heavenly one, who didn't just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah who who was cast out into the storm so that we could be brought in. He's the true Passover lamb, the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, the true light, the true bread. The Bible's not about you, it's about him. Jesus is the yes and amen, the fulfillment and goal of the true story of the whole world. Now let me just speak to my non-Christian friends who are here for a moment. One of the things that I've just been talking about are these patterns and motifs that are picked up and replayed in the life of Jesus. But it isn't just the patterns and motifs that anticipate Jesus, but there are actual particulars and specifics that anticipate Jesus and that Jesus completes. Something Christian apologists have noted for centuries, something that's unique to the Christian faith is this nature of promise and fulfillment. A number of promises are made over time about the one, the chosen one. Genesis 49, there's a king from the line of Judah who was to come. Deuteronomy 18, there's a prophet greater than Moses who was to come. 2 Samuel 7, a king in the line of David. Isaiah 53, there's an individual who would suffer and die for the sins of his people. And Micah 5 is pictured a Messiah coming from Bethlehem. And it's noteworthy that these diverse authors writing in different places and with different genres all await a final act, and all of it finds its completion in one man, Jesus of Nazareth. This means something for the legitimacy of this story. Peter Kreeft, a modern apologist, says this. He says, if you calculate the probability of any one person fulfilling, sheerly by chance, all of the Old Testament messianic prophecies that Jesus fulfilled, it would be as astronomical as winning the lottery every day for a century. That happens to you. We have a second floor that we would like to, if you win the lottery multiple times, we'd like to renovate one day. Even if Jesus deliberately tried to fulfill these prophecies, no mere man could have the power to arrange the time, place, uh, events, and circumstances of his birth or events after his death. Consider the magnitude of what the Christian story claims, is that not only is Jesus the true story for Israel, but he is the one who is in actuality the promised one, the king over all nations. The one foretold with specificity has come. There were innumerable guys prior to Jesus who claimed the title of Messiah for themselves. Too many to count. They would rise up, but they would ultimately be put to death and the movement went kaput. But Jesus is fundamentally different. Because the best part about this king is who he's shown himself to be. This king embraces the sin of his people and dies on their behalf. And part of what's so shocking about this Messiah, this king, is that he's a crucified king. When John beholds Jesus, he says, Behold the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. The serpent crusher has arrived. Though his heel is bruised, he rises again and crushes the serpent's head. And so what Jesus has come to do is offer salvation, not from Rome, but something more nasty and bigger and sturdy than Rome, from death, sin, and Satan itself. 
Chapter two, the great mess of things that we are, we're, we're all victims to and we're all perpetrators of. Jesus comes to offer pardon to those who would receive him in humility and he dies for us. He tears the curtain of the temple in two and he grants access to God once again. And so Jesus says, the time was fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. What this means, if you hear this when you're a non-Christian, Jesus is calling you to give your life over to him. To reset your ways of living, to reset your priorities and center them around Jesus. To turn from sin, to turn from trusting your own wisdom, to devote yourself to Jesus, to follow Jesus. And that's what those of us in the room who proclaim or, or, or uh, uh, follow after Christ, that is what we have done at some point or another. We have turned from our way of doing things to Jesus and his ways. We've received salvation from him, and we're now stumbling along in obedience to Jesus. Jesus isn't coming to say, do good enough things to make up for all of the bad things you did, like the pigeon lady in Home Alone 2, the good deed replaces a bad deed. If that's the, if that's the algorithm that, that you and I are supposed to operate by, we are sunk. Jesus says, turn to me, trust what I have done for you, give your life over to me, be pardoned, be free, be forgiven. Find forgiveness of one of his people. The first way that this story intersects with our story is that Christ has come and it's on us to repent and believe the gospel. But the second thing I'd say, Christian, to you is this. Christ has come, rejoice. That's what Peter writes in 1 Peter chapter 1. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. He says they searched and studied and searched. Who is the Messiah? When will he come? What are God's purposes for the ages? What glories are to be unveiled for us? Verse 12. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. And the things that, they have now, that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The prophets didn't see, they didn't know, not Isaiah, not Jeremiah, not Elijah, not Habakkuk, not Zephaniah. They don't have the information that you have. You have been clued into the long-kept secret. You have. Billy has. Hannah has. Elisa has. Tori has. Iggy has, Harrison has, we have been clued into the long-kept secret that it's Christ, that it's Jesus. His kingdom looks like this, and he's come to serve and live and die in this way. What the prophets long to see, we have seen. And the angels, the ones shouting glory at his arrival, they look at us, and they see how we have experienced redemption, how Christ became one of us, how he was given so that we could have his status as sons. They long to look into what you and I have received. Listen to this. Neither Micah nor Michael have an angle on the glories of Christmas like you. It's the most wonderful time of the year. Rejoice in Jesus. He's come. He's fulfilled the story. He is the one that the story has been building towards. Rejoice in him. Rejoice in the stories. Rejoice alongside the shepherds, the wise men, like Mary and Joseph, in utero, John the Baptist. Rejoice. Rejoice. And like I prayed a couple of moments ago, I recognize that there are many who are hearing this. And rejoicing just does not feel like a possibility for you right now. 
You're here and you've already experienced maybe a Thanksgiving, maybe you're, you're dreading the experience to come of being with family, whatever it might be, of lost loved ones or crushed hopes or bitter family dynamics, whatever it is, there's a thick cloud of dread hanging over you right now. If that's you this morning, I would say especially to you, rejoice. Put on rejoicing like a coat. Put off sadness, put off grief, put on rejoicing. Borrow Jesus' joy. God the Son has become one of us. Something that I think is so compelling about the Christmas story is how it's, it, it, it tell, the New Testament speaks again and again to the sympathy that means Christ has for us. I read a poet recently who said it like this, speaking of Christ. He doth give his joy to all. He becomes an infant small. He becomes a man of woe. He doth feel the sorrows too. And look at this. Oh, he gives to us his joy, that our grief he may destroy. Till our grief is fled and gone, he doth sit by us and moan. That said to you is rejoice with the joy borrowed from Jesus this morning, because he has taken our sorrows, and one day our sorrows will be no more. So rejoice, not with a cheap joy, but joy through sorrow, because Jesus is bearing with you. Friends, Rejoice. That's not the only plot thread, Christ fulfilling the story. There's a second plot thread we'll hit real quick. The second plot thread is this. Though all the promises of God find their yes in Jesus, the story isn't done just yet. Mark's gospel announces the kingdom of God is at hand. Jesus' power is on full display in the gospels. Power over nature, power over demons, disease, and even death. Power to forgive sins. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, ascension to the throne are stories of fulfillment and grand victory. But also, there's a not yet. There remains a victory yet to come. This is so much of what puzzled the disciples. They say, Jesus, we see all of the things that you're doing. We see your power over sin, death, evil, sickness. But when will you bring the kingdom in its fullness? When will you restore the garden and the temple and the kingdom? You know, walls of gold and castles and stuff. We haven't yet seen the thrones and the revolts and the swords. When will you overthrow Rome? When will you finally undo the evil that remains? You think about Acts chapter 1 when the disciples say, okay, now at this time will you restore the kingdom? But what's actually taking place in the story of the New Testament is this sort of dynamic of a victory that is already, but a victory that is not yet. So let me remind you, we, we talked about this a moment ago, the Jewish expectation that the Messiah would come, he would upend and displace the old age with the age to come. But here's what the New Testament tells us happened in actuality. Jesus has come. The age to come has broken into the present, but there awaits out in front of us still a day where Jesus will finally do away with the old age. Jesus is king. He, full stop. But Jesus is victorious now, already. And, well, Jesus is king, not yet. This is a, per, personally for me, uh, this is a hugely important concept to sort of have in your discipleship tool belt, right? You and I live in this candy cane striped little area here, the overlap of the ages. What it means to be a Christian is to be someone who lives between Christ's first coming and his second coming. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15. In fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. 
Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, that is his second coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. What Paul's saying is that Jesus is coming to finally complete and consummate his rule. The full implementation of the kingdom here on earth presented to God the Father, where death is finally no more, where we're resurrected like Christ, where the serpent's head is crushed for good. We actually spend Christmas Eve that morning relishing chapter 12 of the story of the whole world about Jesus' return. But what we want to see today is that the Messiah has come and he's ushered in the kingdom, Mark 1. We have a spirit, we have forgiveness, we have life together. We live in a kind of peace and fullness and joy, but... We still live in the overlap of the ages, 1 Corinthians 15. We're people in between both worlds, so to speak, the old world and the new world, citizens and participants in the life of the kingdom of God, all the while still operating within the kingdom of this world. So that means we're sort of like, well, exiles. What we're doing here on a Sunday morning is like an outpost of heaven in a foreign land, This is much of what the New Testament is about, instructing us how to live as outposts of the kingdom in the midst of a pagan world. We'll consider that more the next two Sundays. And so that leaves us and all Christians everywhere relating very much to the people of Israel, awaiting the Messiah. I have really specific memories um, as a kid of Christmas cantatas. You might know what a Christmas cantata is. I don't don't actually know what a cantata is. Um, Sounds like a dish you get at like an Italian restaurant. Um, but I have specific memories of Chris, Christmas cantatas as a child. I remember we would always have kind of this big um, kind of ordeal, this big service, and you would always have your Sunday school teachers dressed up as wise men and shepherds and stuff, and it was always kind of weird to see them do that, and they're kind of marching down with the big banners. And for me, I remember going to the Christmas cantatas, say, you know, the weekend before Christmas or on Christmas Eve, and what it was for me was sort of the necessary evil kind of the necessary prelude to Christmas, right? It was all about all of these things were these kind of things that you would, I'm speaking as a kid, hopefully our kids don't feel this way, but as a kid, these are all sort of the necessary things that you did before Christmas morning arrived, when the presents arrived, when you had the joy of tearing open your Nerf footballs or whatever. The buildup of time over weeks and months to that day the building and mounting anticipation to that day, the waiting and the waiting and the waiting and the waiting for that moment. That's ultimately what Advent is about. Waiting, anticipating, expecting, longing, edge of our seat peering over the edge. It's about singing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, come again, Lord Jesus. Come, thou long-expected Jesus, because, well, like Israel, we are in exile and we await his coming again. So the third way I think the story intersects with ours is Christ is coming again, so that means we hope. I don't know how bleak things may be for you right now. I don't know what kind of bad news you received or what anxiety or dread you carry in this morning. I don't know the weight of what it is that you're carrying today. I don't know what dreams you've had recently crushed. But if we learn anything from Jesus' first coming, it's that God moves on his own timetable, but he comes. Like the first coming of Jesus When all seemed lost and all options appeared to be exhausted at the last of the last of the last second, when it was like the flame had completely flickered out in silence and darkness, he had the last word. Behold, good news of great joy. 
And, and listen, if we know anything, the God of the first coming is the God of the second coming. This at least means for us hope. Hope, always. There is hope for you. There is hope, there is hope. There is always, always, always hope. The story isn't quite over yet. It will be brought to its glorious conclusion. I don't know what that means for your particular struggle. I don't know if that means it will be resolved this side of eternity. But Christian, church, I know that Jesus will make all things right one day. He's come once and he will come again. That we sing joy to the world now, we will see joy to the world. We will sing with heaven and nature one day when the Lord Jesus returns, just as he came the first time. In the next few moments, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. What the Lord's Supper allows us to do is actually consider both comings of Jesus. We look back to Christ's first coming, where Jesus bore death for us on the cross, where the New Testament tells us that his body was broken and his blood was poured out for us. And so with joy, we take the supper because we're reminded that these things, Jesus' body and blood covers us and assures us of our forgiveness. But we also look forward to Christ's return. I like to say that these are the hors d'oeuvres of the feast that is to come. Just as Christ came once, he's coming again. And as we take the supper, we take the supper as Advent people who exist between the two comings of Jesus. And may it nourish joy and hope in us. After I pray, I'm going to read a liturgy for us that sort of frames out the time. I'll explain the communion logistics and then you can come forward. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you'd help us to see and relish your first coming, to celebrate the socks off of Christmas. But we pray that it would turn our hearts forward to your coming again, that we'd have hope that you are indeed the God of both the first and second coming. We pray for those who are struggling this morning, who limped in here. We pray that a picture of what you've done would give them immense hope. And we pray for those who are in our midst who are not yet believers. We pray that they would see and relish the gospel, see what we have seen in you, Jesus. And we pray that by your spirit, you'd open their eyes to help them see. We pray that you'd make us a church who um, prays with, uh, uh, with eagerness and expectancy. And again, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would come quickly, make all sad things untrue. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.